Hello, and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I'm losing my voice, and I'm joined by Adam Andrews and Angelina Stanford. <laughs> welcome back to the show, guys. How's it going? Thanks. Great. Thanks. Yeah, so if by the end of the show, it's just Angelina and Adam talking, and then it sounds like a small child, um, then that's, that's me, that's the small child. And uh, and then Adam and Angelina may have to hold down the fort for a while. Um, turns out that when you do a lot of podcasts, and it's this the weather is terrible, and you yell at your kids a lot, you lose your voice. Um, <laughs> Something that every homeschool mom can relate to. <laughs> All the homeschool moms are doing a lot of podcasts. Well, we I'm, read out loud a lot. Oh, so, true, you know, true, there's true. a lot of talking. There is, yeah. There's a lot of teaching, all that. Yeah. Let true. me tell you something. Homeschool mom has has had I have had experiences that I never thought a human being could have. One of the things is I learned never to do read alouds after lunch because I would read myself to sleep. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh, absolutely. Loud. It was the most bizarre thing. My kids would say, you would get slower and slower and then you would just fall <laughs> and then they would all be super quiet and walk away. <laughs> smart, smart. Um, it's like when I have, there have been times when I've been reading to my, to my boys at bedtime and then I will fall asleep and they'll just kind of wait for me to fall asleep and then start playing, <laughs> which in retrospect means we haven't, I have not trained them well enough and I probably need to hang them from their feet more often in the tobacco bar. <laughs> That's my very North Carolina threat that I make to my oldest son. Like if you don't stop acting that way, I'm going to hang you by your feet from the tobacco bar. Um, <laughs> Hey, before we dive into our uh, our conclusion, um, I don't do that just to be clear. I don't have a. I was gonna say this is not a parenting podcast. Right. If anybody was stumbling not onto everyone this, everyone in North Carolina is a planter, right? right? And and I don't have a tobacco barn, so I couldn't I couldn't do it anyway. Um, but before, that's what's holding you back. Well, yeah, yeah, you can't hang tobacco in a tobacco barn if you don't have tobacco if you don't have a tobacco barn. Um, before we dive into our our conversation um, about the end of the Great Gatsby. A uh, quick word from our friends over at New College Franklin. They are a four-year classical Christian liberal arts college nestled in downtown Franklin, Tennessee, which, by the way, is a beautiful town. Focused on the great ideas, uh, the quadrivium and the trivium, New College Franklin is dedicated to spiritually forming students by discipling them through the seven liberal arts for wisdom, virtue, and service. New College Franklin, a new college reclaiming and recasting the old Augustinian idea education to take delight in contemplating created truth. Find out more at newcollegefranklin.org. Uh, one more time that it's newcollegefranklin, like benjaminfranklin.org. And uh, yeah, New College is a great place. That's a great college. Uh, Franklin is a great place. My brother-in-law lived there for a while. So I recommend Oh, and the you. campus is right in downtown Franklin. It's like walking distance to everything. Super nice. And if you, weirdly, Franklin, for a small town like that, has some really excellent restaurants. So if you're into that it sort does. of thing. It does. And who's not into good restaurants? And a good music scene. Yep. Yeah, well, how could it not? And you could also go visit the Parthenon. Very true. There's a Parthenon in Nashville. Um, anyway, so we are here to discuss the end of The Great Gatsby. How, so, Adam, remind me, how many times have you read this book? Oh, I don't know. So, it's like more than six, probably? Yeah, probably. And so you've then thus read the end more than six times, presumably. I have, I have read the end, yes. So, <laughs> you, you, always, you always get to that scene at the hotel and you're just done. That's it. You just... Um, <laughs> Did you know Gatsby dies? No. Did you know that? Is that who me? Yeah. Even the first time I read it? No, no, I'm I'm making a joke. Well, I've read it before and I didn't remember that Gatsby died. And I thought, how did I not remember that? 
<laughs> it's funny that every time you said, I we've don't been laughing happened, at you for four episodes. You should have. Okay, this will this will give insight into how my I was going to say my teenage brain worked, but honestly, my adult brain works the same way. <laughs> the only scene in this entire book I remembered was Owl Eyes in the Library. <laughs> now that is funny. <laughs> that made an impression on me. All those books. <laughs> <laughs> do you con- do you consider so? Have you always thought about yourself as Owl Eyes in the Library? It was like, is that was what we should call you? <sighs> Why not? I got sure. It'd be my band, Owl Eyes. Owl Eyes in the library. So, um, okay. So, Angelina, we talked about how you don't remember, and again, we just talked about it now. And so, I'm curious to know how that ending sort of, I don't know, holds up for you. Is it earned? We talked about the. You even so you even suggested that you suspected that it would there'd be a uh, element of anticlimax. Um, in 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 the way the ending sort of plays out, and that there was a little bit of that even in the sections that we had read uh, already, and so I'm curious if you felt that in in reading this this time, and then did did the ending feel appropriate? Did it feel right to you? Did it feel in keeping with the rest of the book? Oh, totally, totally. And I thought it was foreshadowed, and uh, I thought symbolically and metaphorically that it, it wrapped everything up nicely. I've talked before on this podcast, like when we did True Grit, I talked about the Western and how you'll you'll get to this point in the narrative where what do you do with the the hero at the end? You got to do something with them, right? And if you create a situation in which you have established that the the hero can no longer function in that world. Okay, so take a movie like Shane, right? The the guy has to go off in the sunset because there's no place for him there anymore, right? That's one of the points of a Western, just to talk about how much the frontier is changing and there's no room for these guys anymore. I felt like Gatsby was getting to that point after Daisy. Like, so, so what's going to happen to him? Either he's going to have to stay in pursuit of Daisy the rest of his life or rebuild without her, which that seemed inconsistent with Gatsby. Um, or you got to get rid of him. <laughs> right? Yeah, I agree. So, I agree. Also, that's, and, that's and, how it felt and, to me. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. The, at, at a larger level, even Gatsby the symbol rather than Gatsby, the character mm-hmm. symbolizing the, the, um, the urge to build the American dream or the urge to, to go after something that we imagine that's going to somehow satisfy our deepest longings. Mm. That the whole point of the novel is the futility of that in this, in this modern world. If Gatsby symbolizes that urge and represents that urge, he has to die. Or else right. it's a failed novel. And the, the Fitzgerald hasn't said effectively what he wants to say if Gatsby lives. So I, I, I agree with you, Angelina. I think it's right. very... And the way that he doing. did it was fantastic. There was, there was, again, that anticlimax we've been talking about. I mean, on one... This really tickled me. On one sense, he died self-sacrificing for Daisy, right? <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's a sense in which it's this very romantic thing. He's t- he took the blame. You know, he he's going to let out that he was driving the car. He, he gets didn't run up, away you know? like Caraway right. suggested. Right. He doesn't right. go to Montreal. Right. You know, it's it's very romantic. In one sense, he died for his woman, right? Which is very fitting for the, for the quest that Gatsby has been on. On another sense, though, it's entirely undercut. He doesn't know that he's doing that. There's no confrontation in which he heroically says, no, I was driving the car. You know, Fitzgerald doesn't give us any of the of the goods, right, that we'd expect. If this was a Hallmark movie, we would have had that scene. <laughs> I I think you're right. I think this is the, uh, it's another version of the Eckelberg uh, billboard symbol. It's got all the shape and form of the, of the romance of the, um, the courtly love drama from the middle ages, but the substance has been gutted. I think it's, yeah, I think you're right. 
Angelina, as someone who is particularly fond of those, the, of that particular kind of literature, uh, does does the does the gutting of it does it bother you? Does it does it? Well, I'll just leave it at that. Does it bother you, or does do you does it sort of like just is it sort of more like an ongoing conversation about that form, and and then so in that sense, it, it's you enjoy that. Oh, it didn't bother me at all. Um, and and I think one of the reasons it doesn't bother me is that even in the Middle Ages, people were asking these questions about the, the chivalric code. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. A, so, yeah. you know, there, there's a, a huge difference in the way that those King Arthur stories are told from the early Middle Ages to the late Middle Ages. You know, by the time of the 14th century, the emphasis is on the tragedy of Camelot, the death of Arthur, the breakup of the marriage. Uh, the emphasis is all on the tragic elements, not on the, you know, the birth of the new nation and excitement and, and conquering and bringing order to the world that the, that the early legends did. So by the time of the 14th century, the authors are absolutely asking these same questions. Is oh, the chivalry sure. code real? Is, has it just become a mask and it doesn't actually represent virtue? So, I mean, I think Fitzgerald's in a long line of people asking these very good questions. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Canterbury Tales is the cynic, one of the most cynical works of literature ever composed. And the, oh, the courtly absolutely. love tradition is right in the crosshairs. I mean, he, yeah, Chaucer's doing almost what, what Gath, what Fitzgerald is doing just in a different idiom. Oh yes, absolutely. Abs- absolutely. I, I always think that if you lived during the time of the courtly love tradition, then you probably couldn't help if you, and you were a good artist and you weren't like, you know, the King or something, or like actually a, a, a person for whom that court, that tradition was valuable, then you couldn't help but make fun of it. Right. Like how you right. know, we make fun of, the Kardashians or something. And I don't mean to equate the Kardashians with the courtly love tradition, but good. Then you know don't, what, you know, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like we look at people who are very wealthy and there's all, there's a lot of foibles that go with that. And in the same sense, so I've always, so in other words, I've always thought that it makes a lot of sense that someone like Chaucer would just sort of, I don't want to say rail against it, but certainly poke fun at it. And he's, oh, yeah. and, and Chaucer is doing so many of the same things that Fitzgerald is doing, raising the questions of, are these people living up to their ideals? Right. What's the reality versus the illusion and the persona and the masks, uh, which and honestly is probably something everybody's asking. Every artist is asking that. I, I think you're right. And while Chaucer's tone is a little, is a, maybe a little bit more lighthearted. Yes. Um, uh, you know, that may have to do with features of his, his time and place or his particular situation that um, aren't before us now. Fitzgerald, on the other hand, his tone is definitely uh, more, uh, more cynical and more disappointed and more disillusioned. And I think that fits in perfectly with his era. You know, I haven't. Okay, this is going to be off the top of my head spinning. So if I if I misstep, you've watched it live, guys. But uh, because as we you talk always about, come with like long notes that you follow. No, I don't. But very often I'm talking about things I have thought about before, and I've literally sure. not thought about this before. This before I'm going to blurt it out because this is. Are you want to talk about Moroccan soccer? <laughs> <laughs> Not today. Okay. Um, that I will have to read some Wikipedia articles on. But uh, it, as we're talking about the Chaucer uh, comparison, it strikes me that Gatsby is is similar to the character of the knight uh, in the Canterbury Tales. The, the knight Chaucer clearly has respect for and yet portrays him as representing an ideal that no longer exists. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and portrays him as old-fashioned and out of step. And in fact, his son, the squire, very clearly is not carrying on the tradition. Like, so, there's, so Chaucer has this kind of dual thing going on. On the one hand, he's kind of making fun of him because he's out of step and that, that way of life is gone and the knight doesn't realize it. On the other hand, he still sort of admires that there's a goodness there. Um, so yeah, yeah I, but, 
there's a lot of similarities there, I think. Yeah, I agree. The, um, the thing that the knight stands for in, uh, in Chaucer, that, that, you know, that courtly love tradition and the honor and integrity and nobility that, that animated those kind of crazy forms is very similar to Gatsby. The, um, the single-mindedness with which he holds to his vision and, and even at the end, when we talk, and we'll probably talk at length about this idea of being born back ceaselessly into the past, there are things about that past, even if it's imagined, that are worth hanging on to and worth looking back on and worth mm. longing for. And uh, the fact that the, the tradition that embodied them and the institutions that embodied those things has crumbled and gone away is cause for mourning. And, and I think mm. that's, that's why the tone in the last two chapters, especially of Gatsby, and it's why Gatsby has to die. Mm-hmm. And has to die in the way that he did. It's, it's not a heroic moment. It's, he didn't charge into the battlefield. It's not that kind of story. Right. So <clears throat> there's, a, um, there's this bit right before he dies that I'd like to talk about. And I guess, Adam, we are going to definitely talk about um, the ending at length and, and some of the things that are in that final chapter. But in the, the penultimate chapter, before Gatsby dies, there's the bit where... It's the day after everything went down and uh, Nick Carraway is leaving Gatsby's house and he turns to him and he says, um, basically he says, you're better than everybody else. You know, if you add everybody else up together, something like that. Uh, there's probably a curse word in there that I would feel uncomfortable saying on a show that children listen to, right? Um, but but uh, then he says this, he says, I've always been glad I said that. Mm-hmm. The only compliment I ever gave of him, ever gave him, because I disapproved of him from beginning to end. Um, do you? I'm, I'm curious about this concept of Nick disapproving of Gatsby, um, because that's a pretty strong word. Um, he then later goes on to talk about basically a, saying that he was the only person who was there for him. You know that, and he tells. Mr. Gatz, he tells Gatsby's dad that that they were close friends, and yet he says I disapproved of him from beginning to end, and writing it, writing about it two years later. So, do you? What do you? What do you make of that sort of um, dichotomy in Nick's character? And then also, do you agree with Nick that Gatsby ought to be disapproved of. I've been very fascinated by this, this idea. And even as I was reading it again, I kind of knew that was coming. So it should we, should we, to what degree should someone disapprove of, of Gatsby? Adam, what do you think of that, that question? Well, what Nick says to us about Gatsby first back in Mm -hmm. chapter one is that Gatsby alone out of all of them turned out all right in the end. So, so Nick is either contradicting himself uh, here at the end, and, and I would hesitate to, to accuse Fitzgerald of that. I, w- I, w- I would want to give Fitzgerald the honor of saying this story, whatever else it is, is coherent. You're actually saying one thing mm-hmm. and you're saying it equally well from beginning to end. Well, yeah. And I so would, I would int- Sorry, go ahead. I, well, I was just going to say, sorry. I was just going to say that we talked in the first episode about whether or not Nick was totally reliable as a narrator. And that, that, sort, of pl- that sort of plays into that question. Yeah, that's true. Although the other way to interpret this sentence is that um, when Nick says, I disapproved of him from beginning to end, it's a reference to time from the beginning of our of our friendship until the end. There were things about him and what he was doing that I disapproved of. Mm-hmm. I would take that as a, as, a, as a pretty bald reference to Gatsby's lifestyle and the pretense that he built his lifestyle on and the things he was involved in in order to 
get to where he was going. He was a, um, you know, the, the nouveau riche, um, debauched parties, the, the lying, the, the building of the identity, all that stuff rubs Nick the wrong way. That's why he finally says, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go back to the Midwest where nobody's pretentious. <laughs> I think that's what he disapproves of. And then underneath the surface, the real Jay Gatz and his, his goal, his desire, his crusade, and the moral strength with which he pursues it. I think that's what Nick means when he says Gatsby turned out all right in the end, that he never wavered. But I think those two things are, are compatible. He never wavered in his, in his pursuit of the dream, but he was a scumbag. Hmm. Yes, that, that's how I read it, too, that there are two things going on with Nick. And I also, when I read that line, immediately thought of the things he said at the beginning. And then right after that, so in, in chapter, uh, in the last chapter, I, I marked up the passage where after Gatsby has been buried, he goes back to the house and he scratches out the obscene word that had been written. And I, I thought about how all of the things that Nick does after Gatsby's um, death is to keep the illusion alive. He's single-handedly working to keep Gatsby's illusion alive. I'm gonna, I'm gonna shine. I'm gonna put the shine back on this house. I'm not gonna let somebody, you know, put graffiti on it. I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm gonna make people come to the funeral. I'm gonna honor him, and I'm gonna keep up the pretense of Jay Gatsby, which I, uh, that doesn't act like, that's not the behavior of a man who despised Gatsby. He obviously yeah. admires something about him that he, and then I thought, I, I wrote this in the margin. Um, is this why he wrote the book? Is he still doing that with writing the story? Is he telling the story of Jay Gatsby because he's keeping Jay Gatsby alive? The idea of him. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think so. And, and I think when you say the idea of Jay Gatsby, I think you say something really significant there that it's, and this may be this disapproving, but saying he turned out all right in the end, maybe getting to the bottom of this. It's not Gatsby the character or Gatsby the person that Nick either disapproves or approves of. It's and, and, and in, in Nick's retelling of the story and in Fitzgerald's novel, Gatsby is less a character and less a person than a symbol. Mm -hmm. Gatsby is, yes, a, is yes. an idea. It's a complaint that and, some people have about it. Yeah, well, maybe, and I, but I think I actually think that that complaining about that is 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 evidence of not having read closely enough. I would and agree the, with that. And the other thing is spending a lot of time deciding whether Gatsby is someone to emulate, whether he is morally approvable, um, is also a, a, a rabbit trail. I think because mm -hmm. I don't think yes. that's that's Fitzgerald's point with Gatsby. He's not drawing a character to hold up as either a hero or not a hero. He's talking about an idea and he's embodying that idea in a, in a person. But the question of whether that person is, is virtuous or whether that person is worthy of emulation, I just think it's a waste of time really. And it, it results in a, it, it results from a non-literary approach to the story because here's what we, we get at the end Fitzgerald saying, look, I'm talking about this concept, this theme, this universal idea and, and lamenting it's passing. Sure. And I don't disagree with any of that. I think, I think that what I've read over the years from people who have said this is not the novel that everyone claims it is, is simply that because he's too consumed with the idea that the embodiment, because Gatsby then sort of becomes an incomplete character, that that embodiment is not as fulfilling as it, as it could be, or as, as sort of um, successful as he as he thinks it is. So he, he trades in the ideas really well, but then he manages not to create fully drawn characters. And so in that sense, as a craftsman, they would say that he's, he's slightly flawed, that there's not like an objective correlative there. But of course, T.S. Eliot also said the same thing about Hamlet. So, you know, 
I don't see how you can say Gatsby's not a fully drawn character. He feels real to me. He behaves in a way that's real to me. And we might not know everything he's thinking, but that's that's because of point of view issues and narrative. And Fitzgerald doesn't want us to know. He has to keep for the character to work in the story. There has to be a certain amount of mystery there. Uh, and and going back to the idea of what does Nick disapprove of and what does he like, I, I, Nick gets to the point where he disapproves of the the partying and the rich lifestyle and the dissipation and how fake it is. And so he disapproves of that part of it. But I think he gets to a point where he separates Gatsby from that. Like when, when it's obvious that that life was only to get Daisy, to get yeah. her attention. Uh, and that when it doesn't work, Gatsby turns his back on. And I think that changes it for Nick. And he's able to see some, some nobility in, in Gatsby. Again, this idea of the, the, the single-minded pursuit yeah. um, of his desire. And I think, I, I think so. I think Nick is separating a, a lot of things. Um, and I think it's funny that you brought up Benjamin Franklin in the in the ad at the beginning because there have been echoes of Benjamin Franklin and the self-made man yeah, through the whole I book. That's why I did that. <laughs> and well, it was well played. No, and uh, but but when we see <laughs> his dad I'm present, him up. present that book, and in yep. the back it's yep. got his you know his yep. his rules for living. I mean, I wrote in the margin. This is this is straight out of Benjamin Franklin's yep. autobiography. You know, yep. It's it, Fitzgerald's absolutely raising these important questions about the American dream and the self-made man. And all, I mean, Ben, ben, ben Franklin is literally the, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps guy who came from nothing and made something of himself with a plan, much like Gatsby, right? I'm going to self-improvement, exercise, stop smoking, stop wasting time. I'm going to get up at this time and mm-hmm. straight out of that. And also when Nick says, I disapprove of him from beginning to end, he's saying something that all readers automatically says it's so obvious that it doesn't even bear a lot of comment. Everyone disapproves of debauched parties of spending bootlegger money. Everybody disapproves of hanging out with Meyer Wolfsheim. Everybody disapproves of adulterous affairs. That's not, I mean, um, that's assumed that's assumed by Fitzgerald. It's assumed by his audience for us to say, you know, this novel is about debauchery and we should warn, we should be warned away from it. We're missing the point entirely. Of course, Nick approved, disapproved of him from beginning to end. Look at him. The and mo- it's interesting more, the, that... Oh, go ahead. I, I would say that the more important point is Gatsby turned out all right in the end. That's number one. Why did he say that? Mm-hmm. And then number two, what does it mean to beat on boats against the current, born back ceaselessly into the past? What does it mean to give up and come back home? Those are the more important questions of this story, I think. Absolutely. And, and I think that for all of the things we've indicated that Fitzgerald is deliberately being ambiguous, like in the character of Nick, for example, um, there is no ambiguity about the bootlegging <laughs> and, and the murder exactly. and the crime scene. Right? Exactly. Like, Fitzgerald's not muddying the waters. This novel no. is not asking the question of does the ends justify the means, right? Like, nope. well, he, he, that's, that's not this story. So I completely agree with you. Yeah. It's a given in this book that Gatsby is has done bad things to get the money. Right. Yeah. And it's a given that, that, that so, the society of West Egg is debauched and horrible. Yes. We're, we, that's not a discovery that we make when we read it. We're, we're, supposed, we're given that at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Someone's popular out there today. <laughs> it's not I'm gonna, me. I'm throwing my phone across the room. There you go. I just you, threw it. You know, you know you can like mute it, right? <laughs> Actually, I don't know that. This is a new phone. I had to get my daughter to show me how to accept a call yesterday. Okay. Well, at least we know you're popular. Not riding the tech chain here. (laughs) Um, So, so 
he even says on 161 in my edition that um that he paid a high price for living too long with a single dream which goes along with what you're saying that he paid the high that, that for living the way he did there was a high price to be paid for that indicating that there's that that you know in, in, implicit in that is the idea that this isn't that it's not a, the right way of living that you're not that you can't live that way and it not mean that and it not result in something negative basically that there are mm. conse- there there are consequences for for the things that we choose to do um and sometimes at the same time i thought that his death was going to be connected to his shady dealings so very interesting that it was actually connected to tom's shady dealings mm. You thought he was going to get whacked by one of Wolfsheim's boys or I something did. like that? I did. I thought it yeah. was going to end up yeah. being a deal gone bad. Right. Well, but that's just that another way that Fitzgerald yeah. twists the expectations around. But on the other hand, if you like, it doesn't totally not result because of his own shady dealings, right? Because his dealings with Daisy are sort of like in terms sure. of breaking, tr- attempting to break up her marriage are sort of shady. And then that leads, you know, so in, in, in a sense, the dealings that we calling shady with Tom are essentially the same sort of dealings that he that, yes. that Gatsby's involved in. Which makes and the fact them, that Gatsby is mistaken for Tom by Myrtle is significant as yep, well. Yeah, and I was gonna say that exactly that. The the sort of blurring the lines between Tom and Gatsby at the end, I think is mm-hmm. fascinating and and um part of the co- the coherent sort of vision for the world vision of the world rather that 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 Fitzgerald's offering to us that you were just speaking of, Andrew, uh, Adam. <laughs> I yeah, I agree yeah, with that see, We did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think that it's one of the brilliant strokes of the novel to have the, to have Myrtle's death be, um, result from a, well, in part from misunderstanding, uh, mistaking Gatsby for Tom or Tom for Gatsby. Uh, Tom thinks that Gatsby killed her. Daisy actually killed her. So there's a, there's a mix up between Daisy and Myrtle. Um, the, the, those four characters are all kind of morphed into one in that final resolution of the, the marriage affair problem. Can, and can I, I, I think it's Gerald is doing that on purpose for sure. So I have a question about that. You just kind of brought something to mind that I've been thinking about as well. I've been thinking about the idea of pathos in this book and who it's most tied to. And so I guess the question is, where, where, is, where does it rest for you? I mean, at the end of the book, where do you feel the most? And not, not that we should spend you know, some prolonged amount of time talking about our feelings, right? But, but I am curious where the pathos rests for you guys in terms of, you, know, you think about at the end of the book, where, what's the state of Daisy's mind right now, right? Like, and what, what's the state of her marriage? Gatsby obviously dies, Nick goes away. Jordan's kind of treated badly um you've got myrtle who dies her husband is well he dies too i mean there's all it's everybody is kind of left broken you know yeah they are and so i'm, I'm is there a particular character who who most pref, who's who's sort of this is the way i think that may be the better way to ask the question not how do you feel about it but is there a particular character whose reckoning in the end most profoundly moves you Adam, I'll ask you that first, just because mm-hmm. A is whose reckoning in the end moves me. I guess I don't, I don't know. I think it's just a better way of putting it. Then, how do you feel about this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, I don't know. I don't know that that Fitzgerald has given us um, uh, any grounds for for real pathos for a character. I mean, we're supposed to feel for Gatsby based on Nick's testimony that he was uh, in the same way that we feel for, for Hamlet or for Lear or for Romeo and Juliet. They're, the star-crossed protagonist is doomed from the start 
And this is the essence of tragedy. We're supposed to have a catharsis when the star-crossed protagonist finally succumbs to his fate. And it's supposed to be it's supposed to be good for us to contemplate that Fitzgerald doesn't leave us with that because of the, um, because of the way that Gatsby goes about his, his getting his dream. And also because of the society that he lives in that, that requires going about it that way. It's almost like Gatsby's father is the one who's really to be pitied because he is a, a denizen of the previous generation mm. who has lived long enough to see that his issue is futility. Mm. And, and he, he, he weakly holds up Gatsby's uh, little Benjamin Franklin list and says, see, he was such a good boy. <clears throat> and it's, it's a mirage of ashes. Mm-hmm. And, and he is uh, greatly to be pitied because the world has moved on past those things. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're nothing but, what, is it, what does he say in the very end? The rolling hills of the Republic declining in the dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, don't, I think Fitzgerald on purpose is leaving, leaving us without a character to say, aha, that's who we cling to because it's of the nature of what he's trying to say about the 20th century. Do you have pity for anybody at the end, Angelina? I mean, besides everyone. <laughs> <laughs> My reading is, is very much like uh, Adam's. I, I, I didn't feel anything intensely. I mean, I, I recognize that what I am supposed to feel uh, is Nick's reflection on Gatsby after the fact. And I did mm-hmm. feel for it in that moment, but the mm-hmm. death of Gatsby I mean, I didn't, I don't think we're supposed to cry or anything. I didn't, you know, it, it was, um, that was, I was reflecting this morning on how out of order that the narrative is told and, and how brilliantly that's done that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't end with the end. Right. Yeah. You know, and he keeps flipping back. And so it, it ends with Nick's most significant observation, which is not chronologically the end of the book. Right. Right. Well, I guess that brings us to, to the end and before we just jump into the into this one of the most famous passages in american literature i just want to remind people that if you have questions about this book that you want us to discuss on next week's q a episode then you can send them to us you can either post those over on the close reads facebook page and that's uh we'll we'll do the uh hashtag gatsby qa for the uh, to track those or you can just post them you know we'll post a thread but if you want to post them you know, in your own thread, you can put the hashtag of Gatsby QA on that, or you can email them to us at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. So just a, just a reminder of that. Um, so yeah, let's talk about the, uh, the green light. Let's talk about being born back ceaselessly into the past, which sounds either delightful or terrifying, maybe both. Um, <laughs> let's go ahead and read. Um, Let's 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 read the last. I think we should read the context of this. So this there's, there's a the last, let's read the last section of the book. It begins with Gatsby's house was still empty when I left. Um, it's just like about a page worth because I think that okay. getting the whole context for that line there I think is important. We could read just the paragraph, but I don't think it does quite the trick. So Angelina, you want to start and read through. Um, I don't know, the first few paragraphs, and then we can let Adam read the last few paragraphs. All right, I'll stop uh, halfway. Okay. Gatsby's house was still empty when I left. The grass on his lawn had grown as long as mine. One of the taxi drivers in the village never took a fare past the entrance gate without stopping for a minute and pointing inside. Perhaps it was he who drove Daisy and Gatsby over to East Egg the night of the accident, and perhaps he had made a story about it all his own. I didn't want to hear it, and I avoided him when I got off the train. 
I spent my Saturday nights in New York because those gleaming, dazzling parties of his were with me so vividly that I could still hear the music and the laughter faint and incessant from his garden and the cars going up and down his drive. One night I did hear a material car there and saw its light stop at his front steps, but I didn't investigate. Probably it was some final guest who had been away at the ends of the earth and didn't know that the party was over. On the last night, with my trunk packed and my car sold to the grocer, I went over and looked at that huge, incoherent failure of a house once more. On the white steps, an obscene word scrawled by some boy with a piece of brick stood out clearly in the moonlight, and I erased it, drawing my shoe raspingly against the stone, along the stone. Then I wandered down to the beach and sprawled out on the sand. Most of the big shore places were closed now, and there were hardly any lights except the shadowy, moving glow of a ferry boat across the sound. And as the moon rose higher, the inessential houses began to melt away, until gradually I became aware of the old island here that flowered once for Dutch sailors' eyes, a fresh green breast of the new world. Its vanished trees, the trees that had made way for Gatsby's house, had once pandered in whispers to the last and greatest of all human dreams. For a transitory enchanted moment, man must have held his breath in the presence of this continent, compelled into an aesthetic contemplation he neither understood nor desired, face to face for the last time in history with something commensurate to his capacity for wonder. And as I sat there brooding on the old unknown world, I thought of Gatsby's wonder when he first picked out the green light at the end of Daisy's dock. He had come a long way to this blue lawn, and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly fail to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him, somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city, where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and one fine morning. So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. Well, when you first read that, did you think it was depressing? Oh, yeah. Angelina, did you read that and think it was depressing? Um, I don't know if that was the word that came to mind. I didn't think it was... <laughs> I didn't want to turn it into a rock anthem. <laughs> Do you think it's nice? <laughs> um. Honestly, I'll tell you what I thought as I was reading it. I heard the end of Gone with the Wind. And I thought it was very similar. And that's apropos. an interesting echo. Yeah. Yeah. The tomorrow's another day because she originally did not have that in the story. Originally the story just ended with Rhett leaving her. The the publisher, the editor said, no, 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 you can't end on this down note. You have to, you have to put something else. So she did what he wanted. And, and we read that, but tomorrow's another day as a sort of triumphant, you know, power of the human will and Scarlet will rise again. But that was not what Margaret Mitchell intended by that. She intended it to be much like this line, highly ironic, futile. Like, tomorrow might be another day, but Scarlet, you're going to fail again. And yep. so I, it read very similar to me. Yeah, I, I, um, I think that's, I think that the, the, 
for this novel to end on a hopeful note um, would be incongruous in the extreme. Uh, I, I think this is as necessary an ending and, and for that this ending be depressing is as necessary as the Gatsby die, as we were talking about a few minutes ago. At least that's my reading of it. Oh, yes. And, and it's so uh, there's just a lot of levels at the ending here. It, clearly, it is meant to be futile. At the same time, he's not saying chuck it. Right. He's, he's not offering some other thing. I, it almost feels to me like, well, we know it's not going to work, but you know, the whole, it's the journey, not the destination thing, right? Like what else can you do, but get up tomorrow and keep doing it. I think that the last phrase though, is really important. Well, the, the whole last sentence is the key to the whole novel. Right. Uh, but the, the boats against the current part speaks to the futility of Gatsby's dream and of American striving and of the, the impulse and desire to create something for ourselves in the future. But the last half of that sentence born back ceaselessly into the past suggests that what we were what we're really looking for is already behind us it's from a previous generation it's the certainties and the foundation that we came from that are the only sure foundation for where we're going and the fact that we've rejected them is the problem and and he's suggesting that the more we try for something the more we try for grounds of certainty the more we try for an optimistic something we can hold on to in the future the more we're driven back on the fact that we have rejected our past. And that's what, that's what puts us in the Gatsby situation, not as individual yeah. people necessarily, yeah. although that's probably true, but as a culture. I've been thinking a lot about the way this novel, well, what this novel has to say about progress and how Gatsby is a sort of symbol of progress. Um, and, and then he, cause it talks about how we run faster and stretch out our arms farther. We reach further ahead into the future. And that's, that's sort of, symbolic of of oh, progress, progress itself but that there's that's fool's gold right angela i think yeah. you were gonna say something i could hear your well, mouth opening that was yes that yes the sound of my <laughs> of my brain working which always means my mouth is open does my children can attest but <laughs> they work in conjunction my daughter literally says i can hear you thinking stop <laughs> so so well done david at least um, they can't hear you eating well maybe that's you the, but you know. the ending of the book makes me feel like this is a deeply conservative book in the real meaning of the word conservative. And that is not the way I ever thought about this book. Like, I don't remember reading it. I just know that I know it by reputation, right? I don't, I don't know that I've ever heard anybody say this is a deeply conservative book. Oh, it absolutely is. Uh, and Nick says uh, a few paragraphs before what we read after Gatsby's death, the East was haunted for me like that distorted beyond my eyes, power of correction. So when the blue smoke of brittle leaves was in the air and the wind blew the wet laundry stiff on the line, I decided to come back home. Hmm. And he, there, Nick evaluates everything he's seen. And this is what he says. I got to get out of here. I got to go back to the Midwest. I got to go back home. That's as conservative a, a, a yes. sentiment as you can imagine. Yes. And I thought it was an interesting twist on the American literature idea of go West young man, right? This isn't yeah. the go West of Huckleberry Finn. It's not that ending. No, this is a retreat. Yep. It's a retreat for sure. It's a retreat for sure. It, it echoes the, the line from the first couple of paragraphs. Mm -hmm. Everything I saw, I, I have an unaffected scorn for. And he, he means the East when he says that in chapter one and, re, and recalls it here. After Gatsby's death, the East was haunted. And the East, of course, represents this striving. It represents this pretense and this progress. 
and Nick realizes in the end that's it's it's a mirage of ashes. I'm going back home. Hmm. To where things don't change. He makes that point. Yeah, exactly. To where you can live in a house that has the same name for mm-hmm. generations. Yep. So I, I'm. This isn't. I'm not going to push back because I agree with everything you're saying. But I am curious about one line that I think we we have not one well one phrase we haven't talked about. The part at the end of that it, it eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out mm-hmm. our arms farther. Ellipsis and one fine mm-hmm. morning, like three M dashes in a row. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. What do you make of that little? that little coda there on the end of that sentence. Um, I thought it was the, the reality breaking into the, the fantasy, right? That's the American dream. Tomorrow we'll just, we'll do better, right? Progress. We'll, we're going to achieve our dreams. And then he cuts right into that with no, really it's futile. Agreed. Agreed. That little paragraph that begins with Gatsby believed in the green light. That's a little, um, a little ironic coda saying this is this is Gatsby and this is this is the fantasy that he's deluded by that's no matter tomorrow we'll run faster stretch out our arms farther stretch out I mean it's a it's an allusion to the green light thing right yes stretch out our arms farther to what to a fantasy to a delusion to an illusion and it's futile if uh, Hemingway had wrote this novel it would have ended with where the dark fields of the republic rolled on under the night and then he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have added that <laughs> all those last two those last two sentences of uh, poetry um do although i well we could debate about that um this bit about the um the old island you know the dutch sailor's eyes mm-hmm. uh, the transitory enchanted moment man must have held his breath in the presence of this continent compelled into an aesthetic contemplation he neither understood nor desired face to face for the last time in history with something commensurate to his capacity for wonder. That's a pretty amazing sentence. Um, uh, yes. There's a, there's a lot of questions that I have to, that, I, that I'd love to hear your thoughts on. And I'm trying to figure out if I want to just start going through them like a checklist. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, so there's this con there's this, there's this idea of the old house, the the island and the house and all that, those kind of things being together and sort of the mindset of the explorer who discovers something completely new and is in awe of it. Um, given the, given what he's talking about, about progress though, and, and, and the idea of the futility of, of the dream, the of Gatsby's dream, the futility of this sort of American, uh, the American dream in some sense that aesthetic contemplation then is that is he is he suggesting that that aesthetic contemplation that sense of wonder is in and of itself futility as well or the in and of itself futile or is that the sort of is there sort of a purity to that that gets that that once you once you see this thing that you're in awe of and you transfer that to you transfer it to your sort of own vision for yourself that that's when the, f- the futility comes in. Does that what, does what I'm sense? Does what I'm saying make sense? G- give me, give it to me one more time. So I'm wondering if, is he, is he saying that in that sort of aesthetic wonder that he's describing there that, that the explorer has in that sort of sense of in the landscaping open to you to explore, is that in and of itself futile or is it, is it when you transfer that to your own vision for yourself, that it becomes futile like Gatsby does, you know, your own vision for, 
for go west, young man, and make something of yourself. That the futility is entered into the equation. I don't know. I I, I think the idea that there is that that image of the new continent uh, represents is the. I think you alluded to it just a second ago. It's the oppor- we have an opportunity now that we neither understand nor really ask for to create our own future with our own hands. Here is a blank slate, and here is the opportunity to build a future to our own specifications. Wow, that is overwhelming. And I think that's what he's that's what that image of the new continent represents. I think the futility comes in uh, at Gatsby's stage. Not necessarily at the explorer stage, when you're dead. because that's that's been done, and the results were rotten in some ways. Mm-hmm. That's how I read it too. I, I mean, if he keeps pushing us back into the past, and so he he goes back to the very beginning of the American dream, which was this wide open hope, which is enchanted and is intoxicating. Um, when everything, when the moment is ripe for possibilities, it doesn't get any better than that. I mean, even if you fulfill it, it's not going to be as good as that moment when you were on fire with the hope of it. Mm-hmm. That's this, what you're describing there is why I think this book is, you know, is such an important, um, contribution to the conversation that is the American literature, because it ties in, you know, it's, it's a furtherance of the, the things that, well, you guys mentioned that it's not Huckleberry Finn, but it's certainly a furtherance of the contemplation of the things that Twain is contemplating throughout much of his work, uh, including his nonfiction, and that you, you go back to Hawthorne and James Fenimore Cooper, and to some extent, even some of the writings of, of some of the founding fathers and things like that. And I think that in that, in what you're saying there, is evidence of the fact that it is part of that ongoing canon. I think that's one of the reasons why it's lasted so long. It's not just because it has some things to say to a specific time. Um, oh, but it's no. because it's, it's a, it's participating in the conversation, you know, the quote unquote great conversation that is the canon of American literature. And I think that's why it's, you know, well, that's why it's lingered so long. And I think that's why it will linger on into the future, even as. Yeah, I, I agree. I love that. That's, yeah, I love that con- that connection between what Twain's doing in Huck Finn and Hawthorne in The Scarlet Letter and Cooper in The Last of the Mohicans, always doing the same thing that Fitzgerald is doing, the very same thing, which is lamenting what is past and basically saying what we've got now is a disaster in one way or another. There's trouble in this particular day and age. And the fact that in every day and age, great writers and great artists are saying the same thing is significant. Mm-hmm. Fitzgerald mm-hmm. says it for the 1920s. Mark Twain says it for the 1880s. Nathaniel Hawthorne says it for the 1840s. Cooper says it for the 1820s. Go back all the way, and, and every author is saying two that things. Pretty good. This you particular those, day and age that I live in <laughs> is corrupt and and foul compared to what came before. And at a universal level, we're always in this situation. Mm-hmm. So does he often does he offer? So, so one, I think oh, I can't remember which one of you said this, but you basically were saying that 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 the suggestion of the novel is that by being consumed with progress, it's it's fool's gold, it's futile, and that that in the, the he takes us back to the past because that's the only place that there's anything to stand on to actually that's actually solid. I I don't, Adam, it might have been you that said something along those lines that I just butchered. What is what is he what is he pointing to in the past though specifically that is the thing to stand on? Because it sounds like, I mean, you're saying 
that every generation has that same issue. So is he, what is it, you know, what is the thing, the sort of foundations upon that, that he, that we should turn to that can help us avoid the futility that he's describing in this book? Is there, is there something he is sort of turning his readers and his characters towards and saying, this is the thing that's worth looking at. That's an interesting question. And I, I think it has two answers. I, I think he has something in mind for sure, mm-hmm. but I don't think he's saying if we could only turn back to it, let's all turn back to it. Here's a plan for turning back to it. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, the thing, it, the thing it is, is, is Christianity. The thing it is, is the God represented by TJ Eckelberg's spectacles and the culture that sprung from Christianity in the American context. It's the system of Christian truths and moral principles that, that, that derive from them that made American society in the 19th century. That's what he's looking back to. But he's not saying, let's all, let's all make sure we go back to Sunday school. Here's the path forward to get back to that. What he's saying is, we left it. We lost it. It's gone. And he's not going any further than that. Yeah, we didn't talk about it, but the scene, the scene with Wilson and his friend where his friend keeps saying, don't you have a church? Shouldn't you have a priest? Like all of that. that that. So, so heavy. Um, So many writers do the same thing. George Orwell has a very similar scene in 1984 um, where he shows that once the character says, no, I don't have a church. I don't believe in all of that. Then they have no way to cope with what they're going through. There's nothing. Exactly. That's exactly what he's all what he's on about. Even, I mean, you can see in all the other authors you mentioned, David, a minute ago, they're all doing that in their in their own way too. Mm-hmm. When Mark Twain blasts organized religion, he longs for some sort of organic Christianity that is, yeah. you know, sub organizational that's actually real. Yeah. Hawthorne's doing the same thing with the, with his Massachusetts heritage. I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's um, <laughs> at least in the American tradition, we, we're always looking back to when the the tenets of this faith gave us a civilization and to one degree or another we've always rejected it and are are reaping the whirlwind to use another 1920s Hmm. reference you know as i've said before american literature is not my forte by any any means but um what's striking me and i'm sure this is glaringly obvious to both of you but um I can just, I see that Fitzgerald's saying the same thing as Elliot. I, and now I understand why Elliot was such a huge fan of this book and promoted it. I mean, they are, they are responding to all of the same things. And Elliot also believed the answer was in the past. And Flannery O'Connor thought the answer was in the past. And Dorothy Sayers and Lewis and Phil, I mean, those are, that's, that's all the same voice critiquing where we are and saying the answer is in the past, but not like, like Adam is saying, not giving us the map to how to get back. Fitzgerald Mm -hmm. in in this book, it's very like, um, there are mysterious forces at work that you're pushing against that you don't understand. That's, that's an echo I'm hearing through the whole book. And so I I think he's pushing us back to examine what these mysterious forces are. Yeah. He essentially says that I'm probably not gonna be able to find it though. So I shouldn't have even said that, but Adam might but know it. Go. He talks. Yeah, he does. He talks specifically. Like, doesn't he use the word mystery at some point? Like he talks about how uh, several times there's a mystery that you're. Um, uh, shoot. Uh, well, he talks about the idea of a new world, and that it's all ghostly. You remember that? Yes. And that you can't mm-hmm. actually grasp the things that you think you're looking for in some new world are like they're not things that are material. They're not things that you can actually you can actually put your hands around and, and thus they're, they're not, they can't actually be meaningful to you, to your life. They can't actually like take you anywhere. Um, yes. 
and then and, and, and they're ashen oh, you know they're in that way that they, they're sort of ashen like they're in the sense that ashes are no longer something you know when a house burns down they're no longer something that that can can be meaningful anyway it's, it's the wasteland it goes right? through your fingers yeah exactly yeah Go ahead. Sorry, you were going to say something. Oh, well, I just um, and and Fitzgerald connects the two mysteries, right? Or the mysterious forces and Daisy. Daisy's the other mystery. And he tells us that Gatsby is attracted to her because she's something mysterious that he doesn't understand. And then she, he says she becomes his holy grail. So there's an interesting sense in which Gatsby is echoing the quest we're all on to get to the source of this mystery. Um, but it's misplaced with Gatsby and that's why it's futile. Yeah. We talked last week about how one of the things that, that he, one of the reasons why he was pursuing Daisy. So, so steadfastly was perhaps because she represented something for him as much as it was to her herself. And in this section that we read for this week, it talks about how Gatsby was overwhelmingly aware. This is 150 in the Scribner version I have. Gatsby was overwhelmingly aware of the youth and mystery that wealth imprisons and preserves of the freshness of many clothes and of Daisy gleaming like silver, which goes back to that money thing. She had the voice of money, uh, safe or safe and proud above the hot struggles of the poor. Um, which is, there's a, that's a loaded sentence. We could probably spend the whole episode on if we wanted to. Um, <laughs> but that, so she represents something that he can't, that's not actually graspable. And he thinks he's going into the past for something, you know, he, there's something, some sense of um, nostalgia, but that, uh, the nostalgia that he's after is actually sort of an ironic nostalgia. It's not really actually something that you can stand on at all. Whereas things that are truly worth having nostalgia for are actually things you can stand on. They're actually foundational and they're, I mean, material is kind of an interesting word that he chooses there, but the, the things that are, the things can actually be built on if that makes sense. Yes. And Gatsby makes the mistake of thinking that money is the thing, but Fitzgerald keeps telling us it's not because Gatsby has the money, but he still isn't really understanding the way money works and that whole world that's operating. And he's, he's not really in that world. And it reminds me of what Mark, Mark Twain does in Huckleberry Finn. Like you were saying, it's not Christianity he rejects. It's this sort of outlawing, like he equates Christianity with forcing Huck to put on shoes. Like he, he, he's, he's rejecting the, the idea of the externals of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I feel like Fitzgerald's doing something similar here too. Gatsby never gets past the external shine of the money and the wealth, yeah. but he can't really enter that world. And I, I would just emphasize again that Fitzgerald never goes to the point of saying, um, there is something positive that we can be striving for. If only we would, he only ever says, this is what we lost. And that may be one of the reasons that the book is, is hard to, you know, hard to grasp or hard to swallow or hard to make a peace with, um, especially for someone who's thinking of assigning it to young people, for example. But, but God, I think God and Christianity of the 19th century is the, is the foundation, but he only appears in this novel as the sightless eyes of Eckelberg or as the forlorn, forlorn hope of Tom Wilson or something along those lines. So it's, it's, he never goes to the point of saying, you know, yeah, well, we can't have it both ways because when authors do that, we say, Oh, he's so preachy. Exactly. <laughs> and we don't like that. I mean, I, Oh gosh, I feel he'd like be, Fitzgerald would have been so out of step. He'd only saying one. Yeah, I agree. I agree. He'd be saying two things if he went that far. And I don't even think uh, he Fitzgerald himself might not have wanted to say that second thing. What remains is he certainly didn't say that second thing. It's two different gifts, I think, being able to identify the problem and then being able to solve it. 
Yeah, I agree. And I'm excited. I mean, that's what T.S. Eliot does in The Wasteland. He doesn't offer a remedy to that. He just says, look at the mess we've made. It may be that literature, if I, this may get too big, but it, it Ooh, may be that literature it. is not the best genre of intellectual activity for solutions. Maybe it's better at identifying problems. I mean, um, sermons, frankly, are a lot more apt and finely tuned for contemplating solutions. Art tends to, <laughs> art tends to focus on the other. Oh, I in compelling ways. agree with that. No, I, mean, I love the nature that. Of yes. Well, that's one yeah. of my passions is to teach people not to read literature like it's a sermon. It, they're not giving you the three-point outline on how to get to God. That is not what a work of literature does. Right. Or should mm-hmm. it? I mean, really, Fitzgerald's not a pastor. He's not fit for that job. No. It's a crazy that we want him to be. I totally do, agree with that. Who do I, I'm? I mean, I, I'm not saying there's not people that say that, but like, do you actually get people who are saying they want him to be like? Well, you know, David, they in the sense that, for example, this search for an ideal type. Yeah, but that's completely different than what you're describing, in my opinion. But I don't know. Maybe it is, but but this search for an ideal type has a moral component to it. The search for a moral template, the search for a a character to emulate, for a a model, a, a worthy guide for the young. I mean, to look to look for to look to literature for for moral patterns is I think a subset of that, of that um, urge to find in everything we read the elements of a sermon. And I think this distinction between literature and theology or literature and homiletics or whatever you want to say is really worthy, worthy to contemplate. If, the, if, the, if the, the concept of an ideal type doesn't help us understand Gatsby, I don't know where it fits unless what we're trying to do with literature is um, provide a moral education. You see what I mean? Yeah. Mm. I do. I, I agree with you. I'm very, very uncomfortable talking about ideal types in literature. Very well, uncomfortable. Honestly, I, I mean, like I'm, I'm, I think that you are not talking about the same thing then. I'm not talking about, I'm talking it's about possible. Um, well, I've never been really entirely sure what was meant by ideal type. And that's, I just, that's not how people talk about books literarily. So that was, well, that's not idea. true. Maybe, that's, that's, maybe that's that's I don't small. understand it either. I mean, Lewis talked about them very specifically. So did Tolkien. I mean, that like that. I mean, maybe people don't talk about them like that now, but like people have talked about I, types worthy of worthy of. I mean, and I don't. I think that to say that a ideal type is worthy of emulation, even to that to that to narrow it down, that is a, that way is a little bit reductive, and that might be my fault or Matt's fault. I'll, maybe we can blame it on him <laughs> because I don't actually think that you have to have a person to emulate for there to be types that are ideal. Maybe I'm misunderstanding the worst, the use of the word ideal in that, in that phrase. Then. Yeah. And I, I mean, we're, there's a, there's a certain extent to which we're talking about something very subtle that probably we don't have time to, to dedicate to in the next like 10 minutes. <laughs> of course. And I'm, I'm sorry if I brought up a, um, a rabbit trail, but, but I the, think the, a, the, go ahead. Well, the general idea that the, um, that our urge to read literature so as to um, uh, find what we would, normally find in church, I think is the, is the impulse that it's good to make sure that we're doing self-consciously because as Angelina said a minute ago, Fitzgerald wasn't a pastor. He's an artist. And there's a difference between those two things. And they, and the work of those two kinds of people offers us different 
uh, well, opportunities. I guess where I guess that's where you kind of have collectively lost me because I'm not entirely sure what you mean by like I'm not sure how those two things are the same. How looking how the consideration of ideal types in literature and looking for uh, what you're going to find in church are the same thing. Because like, if you look at fairy tales, for example, or fables or mythology, they're full of what, what scholars would call ideal types, but that doesn't mean that they're doing what, what's happening in church. I mean, you can read, you can read a fairy tale or, or, a, or a mythology or so any classic piece of literature and identify ideal types and still not moralize. Except what we do when we when we take the concept of the ideal type is we say Gatsby is a flawed ideal type. And so we need to make sure we don't read it because it's broken somehow, because the, the concept of the ideal type has been mangled somehow by Fitzgerald. And mm -hmm. at, at that point, we, I mean, maybe that maybe that's not what we're doing, but uh, it, good if it isn't. Because, <laughs> I don't think that's what, because, I don't think that's what people are saying. If they're saying, like, if I talk to, I mean, I, um, so for example, this came up because Matt Bianco had some, has some concerns specifically about teaching it. And so I don't think that in talking to him, I don't think that he would say that you, sh that, that there's like a mangling of an ideal type there. I think that what he's saying is there's a very specific, like, question we have when we're teaching very specific kinds of students. And so, and that raises concerns for him. I don't think that he's saying it's like, well, I, I shouldn't speak for him, so I, maybe I should stop. <laughs> but I don't think that I don't think that's the same thing. I don't think having concerns about what you put in, and I I have taught this, and I would teach it. So just to be clear, but I don't. But for devil to be a devil's advocate, I don't think that it's the same. That having concerns about who you teach this to, or being, or asking yourselves whether it's appropriate to teach to certain kinds of people, is the same thing as moralizing it. No. No, that's a matter of discretion. But um, there is absolutely, there's absolute, not every reader does this, but there are curriculum even designed for this to try to extract some moral from the story and then judge it. I mean, oh, I, only yeah, I don't disagree so, with that. So, I mean, that's, I think that's, that's what, good. that's what I'm getting at this. I agree with you um, that that's not good. Right. I, so I would disagree with anybody who would end this book and then judge it because it did not explicitly point to the cross. I mean, it, it, but it does point to the cross over and over, but it, it didn't end with an addendum to go read your Bible or Jesus <laughs> right. is the right, answer. Right, right, right. Right. And we're total, I think collectively the three of us are in total agreement on that. I think, I think so. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, gosh, I, again, I'm just, I'm naive and I love books and I'm out of touch with most other human beings. So I'm just going to say this <laughs> ridiculous thing, but I don't know how anyone could read this and think that it's anything other than profoundly conservative and Christian. Like I, I just, I, 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 that's not the story I read. Now, now that's not to say that a 12 year old should read it because maybe they don't have the discernment to see it. Right. Um, right. But the, the, I, I would be that's very, why for me, sorry, you broke up no. for a second. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I was just kidding. That's why for me, it's, I think they should read it. And I think they should read it within the context of a larger tradition of literature, because I think that once they've read enough other great books with the right kind of guidance, they will have the eyes to see that. But if you've read, if you've never read anything like this before, and then maybe there's things, and even then I would say that maybe you should read it, but, but, but I can see the concern if you haven't been properly prepared to see the things that you're describing. Yes. And it does end on a down note and it does end on a futile note. But F. Scott Fitzgerald is not saying with that last paragraph, life is futile. We live in a nihilistic, meaningless world, which I think is how some people are tempted to read ending. He is not saying that at all. 
the reason it's futile is because there is meaning in the world that these characters don't understand. So it's funny because we were talking about ideal types back in like the first episode or something, and we were discussing whether there is one here. And I actually think that there is one. I just haven't said anything about it yet. And I think that in some ways, Nick, for all of his errors is in some ways he he part- he does things that if you have to look for someone to emulate so to speak if that's something you're concerned about which I'm relatively not concerned about that personally like you like the two of you aren't but the fact that he he turns away from it he leaves i think that there that that falls in the model of what you could say like he re- he learns to recognize the things that are flawed and in a sense he models like he physically incarnates the concept of repentance by turning away from it and i think that so I'm sorry. Go ahead, David. I'm sorry. Go on. No, no, guys. And stop. <laughs> so I think if you have, <laughs> so I think if you have to find something in there, there, there is something that is worth emulating. That's worth modeling and recognizing. Okay. So let me just play devil's advocate with you then for just a second. Does that mean then if, as I'm trying to get my mind around the concept of ideal type, you just use the phrase to refer to, and correct me if I'm wrong here, to refer to a character who does things that are morally approvable and that we take moral instruction from. Is that what an ideal type is? Is that what we mean by the phrase? I think it can be part of it. And I saw, that's why I was saying, if, you're, if, that, if that is something that you have to look for, then you can look towards Nick turning away. I'm, I, think it's, like, I think it's a much more subtle concept than that. So I'm, that's why okay. I was kind of even hesitant to, to even point towards that. And I'm just saying, for someone who needed that, I think that, 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 is, that, that Nick's turning away the way he does is something worth emulating. Um, okay. So- I was just trying to make sure I got my, uh, that, I'm, that I'm using the phrase ideal type in the proper sense in the context of this conversation. Because what I, what I understand it to mean is there's an ideal type in this story, meaning there is a, there is a protagonist or a hero of some kind who fits a so- definition protagonist or hero that includes someone we can look up to and emulate and model. So, okay. So you've used the, the idea of like moral education. And I think there's a difference between moral education and moralizing something. Would you agree or disagree with that? Well, I think moralizing would probably be a, more of a derogatory term. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it would, it would be because it's bad, but, um, I mean, I'm being tongue in cheek when I say that because it's not always bad. But um, some some things actually should be more or less. Uh, maybe not literature, but anyway. Um, but there is still like the nature of the arts, the nature of human existence, the nature of human nature, the nature of the imagination is such that when you read something, when you participate in something, when you live in a community, a moral education of some sort is naturally occurring. Like you can't avoid that. Like that's, it's just, it's fundamentally impossible to avoid that. So I'm not saying that we should spend all our time looking for morals in books, but our moral, our, our moral capacities are being shaped and formed by the things that we're participating in. Is, would you disagree with that? Well, Very I don't, I mean, negatively certainly or not. Certainly not. I mean, the fact is, we interact with every facet of our of our experience, and we behave mm-hmm. in response. Mm-hmm. So, on that very general level, you can call that moral education. We learn how to behave based on what we interact with, for sure. Mm-hmm. But when we read literature, our our I guess what I, what I'm uncomfortable with, especially in a conversation about Fitzgerald and the Great Gatsby in 20th century American literature, it, more generally 
is the effort to read it so as to do that self-consciously with young people. And then to be oh, worried yeah. about Gatsby and Nick Carraway sure. and Daisy Buchanan, yeah, because yeah, yeah, somehow yeah. reading yeah. their stories will teach us to behave badly or mm-hmm. think the wrong things about the world. Right. I actually, and, and, and then what I, I think that, that leads to sometimes is putting words in Fitzgerald's mouth. Sure. Yep. Totally agree with that. My, I guess what I'm suggesting is, is like, I, well, honestly, like, yeah, I think you and I actually pretty much agree on all of this. I'm, yeah, I'm, but isn't a devil's advocate I'm, conversation fun? Right. And it's also like <laughs> kind of my job. <laughs> so, um, I can't tell you how many times I've disagreed with things I actually believe on this show, which makes me kind of like in, in a, a uh, an unreliable narrator, I suppose. Um, but, um, so could, if we, if we believe that, what I kind of just went on that spiel about a second ago, about how like whether we mean to or not, there's a moral, a sense of moral development happening based on the things that we participate. Like if you believe that, even if you say, I'm not going to spend time moralizing this and I'm not going to spend time, you know, pointing kids self-consciously, as you put it, towards the moral education that the book is pointing us towards, right? Even if I'm going to avoid doing that, there, you, it's still, I, I don't begrudge someone saying that because I know that things happen subconsciously within the souls and minds of my children, I'm going to use discretion in the things that I put before them because I know those children, for example. Absolutely. Not, absolutely. No, no one would disagree with that. Right. But, but, but here's the thing. In Fitzgerald's world, there are no ideal types. If, if ideal type is what is the th- is the concept that we've been talking about, if I understand it correctly, you mean in the world in, of the book or in Fitzgerald's in, world, in the Great Gatsby, in the in the world that he's created in the Great Gatsby, right? There okay. are no ideal types, and to say that there are is to misread the story. That's my concern. Mm. Misunderstanding Fitzgerald by saying by importing this idea of ideal types into a story that was written to make the point that they don't exist. That that's what I that's what I would. That's what makes me uncomfortable. Right. So you, and that, the whole point of the story is that, that the world of ideal types is gone. Right. I was going to say that. Yeah. That, that's one of the things we've lost. Right. I think that's why there's that Benjamin Franklin uh, echo through the whole story. Yeah. He's an, yeah. He's an American ideal type. But, but exactly. Gatsby is not exactly Benjamin Franklin. Um, so let me ask you this then. If you believe that he is wrong about that, if you... If you believe that, you, well, I mean, maybe you maybe you agree that we have that that we have lost that we have something better has passed. But if but what if you believe that there are still such things as ideal types out there, and so it, if Fitzgerald's arguing that such a thing doesn't exist, then how would you? What's your? How do you sort of um, debate with him about that? I mean, or I don't know if that's the way of putting it. I just like sometimes you say things you don't really mean to say on a live podcast. <laughs> well, well, one of the things that one great response to the Great Gatsby, I think. Um, after doing a, a, a literary reading, like we've been attempting here in the last few podcast episodes is to, to see, look, the guy says, here's what he says about the world that mm-hmm. we live in. The mm-hmm. world that he lived in is a hundred years ago. Now mm-hmm. but we can look back and say, is the world that he lived in? Was it really like that? Mm-hmm. Is our world today really like that? Does TJ Eckelberg still stare with sightless eyes out over our ash heap of a culture? Wow. Yes. I think you might be right. I think it's true. When I turn on the television, when I go to a ball game, when I walk down the, you know, the middle of a shopping mall, when I talk to my coworkers, I think Fitzgerald might have something there. What do I do about that? How do I respond in my own mind and heart to the suggestion that if TJ Eckelberg moved away, we got nothing but a valley of ashes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I and appreciate- I think that is an an appropriate response to a work like this. I appreciate your distinction, of course, that 
you know, the first reading ought to be a more, I, I think you used the word literary approach that you kind of have to look at. And Angelina, you talk about this. You have to look at it for what it is first. And then once you begin to identify the, the, the thing on its own terms, maybe those universal truths become clear that maybe the universal truths in the work become clear. But if we start by trying to point out to our children all these universal truths, then then they're not taking the work on its own, kind of on its own merit. At the, it is based on its own sort of inherent nature right away. That's, and and, and when you, I mean, essentially what we're talking about is whether or not you're ready to fully immerse yourself in a complex and mysterious work of art. Um, versus this temptation to want to reduce everything to make it simple. I'm going to reduce this novel to a catchphrase and then we're going to judge whether it's right or wrong. But that is not how art works. Right, right. Um, and, And that's one of the things that I push back. Well, that's why one of the reasons why I talk about mystery with art and transcendent experiences, because I'm trying to shake us out of this idea that that, you know, we need an Aesop's fable at the end of a novel. Aesop didn't even put those morals at the end of his fable. Someone else added that. Uh, and w- these are these are ideas for us to contemplate. And um, I'm comfortable as a teacher leaving my students in a state of mystery. Um, frankly, I don't think 17 year olds should walk out of my class thinking they have all the answers to the universe. I like mm-hmm. putting them in a place where they realize I'm gonna have to think about these things. Maybe my because the implication life. would be you have the answers, and I don't well, want right, them. Exactly. Right. You don't want that. Do we? None of us want that. Right, and which is not the same thing as saying there are no answers. Right, but this isn't nihilism. To say that Fitzgerald doesn't know how to find the way back is not. A, that's not a criticism. What human, no human being can say, I've got the, I know how to get right. us out of this mess, right? We can right. point in the general direction. It's going to take a really long time to, to figure that out. And, and another thing, and, and, uh, and this is why I, I, I like this book. Another thing that I like to do with my students um, is, is as they're immersed in the great conversation over time, they begin to realize that all of these things that they thought were unique to our own contemporary time are not Everybody has been saying the last generation was better yeah, that, than my generation. That like whole thing about this book, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a jazz Cicero. age refrain on Cicero. Oh, tempora, oh mores, absolutely. Right, right, and 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 that's good for us to know. It's it's not that there's something inherently evil about our time. It's that human beings do this. This is the struggle to be human. Yes. Yes. Yeah, well, maybe there. Although maybe there is something inherently evil about our time. Who knows? <laughs> There's something uniquely evil because every age is different, but every age is also the same. Yep. Yeah. I have to be devil's advocate though. We already talked about this. No, no, this is, this, this is good because, um, I think we have to be really careful how, how we talk about books and, um, and, and I know I I say this a lot. I'm never, never going to fault a Christian who is saying, I want to please God with the things I put in front of my children. I mean, yes, that is, of course, the question we should all be asking about everything. But I am willing to suggest the answer to that question is not as easy, as easily determined as you might think. Right? And you talk about this all the time, David. It's not a matter of saying there are this many swear words in this movie, so it's God honoring or not. Like, that's not how art works, right? There's a, there's a larger context to understand how these things are being are being used. And one of the questions, of course, is what are the consequences to the characters? Um, and is, 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 the fic- is the artistic world that's being presented, is it, is it saying um, that meaning cannot be determined? But even then you could twist that around. But um, I, I have you know, not forgotten where I'm going with this, but well, you get the idea. Yeah. And you're mentioning something that brings something to mind because there's a lot of debate among 
even in-house here in Cersei. And then also just like, I know I've debated this with Ian before and because, um, you know, Ian's the kind of person who never wants to have a debate about anything. Um, but <laughs> but there's the, the concept of like asking whether a character should have done something. And one of the things that, and, and like I would argue that, and I have used that question with a lot of success in terms of opening up a book because it points us towards themes without having to meet, having to say them, you know? But one of the things that gets argued is, well, if you do that, then the implication implicit in the question is that there's a right answer. And that's not really true. Well, that's not really what we're after when we're asking that question. We're not asking like for students to say um, when they, when Odysseus or when Aeneas left Dido, that there was a right or a wrong answer to what he did. Even if the student's pretty convicted, convicted of one answer or another, the kind of wrestling with the question and all the sides of the question is what tosses them into the mystery of the work. And so, you know, I think when we start asking even good questions with the implication that, and we, or we imply to our students anyway, that, there, that there's always this one answer to all these questions, then that takes them out of the mystery of the book. And what we want is to create, cultivate habits of being sort of comfortably uncomfortable in the mystery of art, if that makes sense. Do you agree? With yes. You? And I think what we're circling around is the idea that what we want to achieve with a lifetime of reading is wisdom. And there is no shortcut to that. There's no shortcut. No, the should question can't be a shortcut. The I'm going to find a theme can't be a shortcut. There's no shortcut to wisdom. And that also means letting your students struggle with it, letting them get it quote unquote wrong, because the next time they read it, they will realize okay. as I do every time I read a book, man, I was an idiot back then. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing for a human being to 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 learn. I mean, when when I'm I'm going to try not to get on a soapbox here, but you know, one <laughs> so of the things what that episode can, is a soapbox. <laughs> one of the things that can happen is that when we give the impression to our students that they have the ability at 14 years old to judge a classic work of literature and that their judgment is valid, that, that, that is doing a horrible disservice to that human being. You know, you, at 14, you don't know anything. You don't know you anything. You have enough work at age 14 to understand. Well, right. I feel like my job as a Usually teacher is to help them later. hear, to help them hear what Homer said, right? Yep. You're not ready at 14 to judge anything. <laughs> by the way, though, there's one, there's one element. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I just, what do you mean by judge? Okay. E e you know what I'm talking about. You've got this middle school student well, who is drunk with drunk with their own opinion and is and, and goes around saying things like, yeah, Plato really missed the boat here. I'm like, really? You, you know that you you've, you've, you you know better than Plato. How to think about time of thinking about Plato. Yeah. OK. Right. So, so it's like where, where, where a 15 year old thinks they know whether the book is actually good or not. Yes. Basically what you're saying. Yeah. OK. Right. Because I right. think what we're trying to do is teach them forms of judgment as well, because like. And, and that like, it's a process. Why, right. Right. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why I'm saying, that's why I asked what you mean by judge, because part of the process is teaching, is innate, is empowering our students to make judgments about. Them. Yeah, I don't mean judge in the sense of discernment. I mean, like making a final judgment call on right. this is a bad book. And I right. know it because I have all the wisdom of a 15 year old and I've read it once. Yeah, like we, we do want to be able to teach. I think we would agree that we do want to be able to teach our students to judge like in some way or another, like what what the place of us you're like, what's the place of this theme or whatever? And like that, there's a judge, there's a sense of judgment that has to go into a conversation about the elements of a work of art. So that's, I just want to clarify that we were talking about the same thing, basically. Adam, you were going to say something. Oh, I can't remember what it was. So there's another element to, I think you were going to talk about something I said. Well, there's another element to this, this idea of judgment. Um, Angelina said something a couple of minutes ago about um, whether or not 
this is a whether or not a novel like Gatsby can be um, approved of as I don't know if you use the word godly, but uh, uh, according never. to the the categories of um, Christianity. And I got to thinking that the one question we could ask of the great Gatsby is, is this author with his story telling the truth about the human condition? Absolutely. And That's if he a good is, question. is this not, does this novel not partake of the truth of God? Yes, yes, I mean, yes, yes. We don't have to yeah. burden Fitzgerald with all of the responsibility of identifying the problem of human nature in this world and solving it for us and doing it without swearing. <laughs> we can actually just give him the responsibility of telling the truth about what he sees and doing it in a, in a universally compelling way that participates in this great conversation that we've been alluding to. If he does that, then his novel is performing a, dare I say it, a godly service yes. to God's people in the world. Although I don't begrudge podcast hosts who decide they don't want to read the curse word because children are listening and then you'd have to make the show have that little explicit tag. <laughs> well, that's, that's discernment. <laughs> totally no. different question whether a podcast know, should I'm swear <laughs> or whether, whether Fitzgerald should be prohibited from swearing. I think those no. are two totally different questions. I don't want to have to put that little explicit tag on the episode. Yeah, <laughs> see, I, I don't agree that there is a difference between artistic truth and Christian truth. And I'm not saying any of you are saying that, but I hear that um, unstated assumption in a lot of conversations like well is it christian truth well you know what other kind of truth is there the <laughs> the the art is either true or it's not true you don't have to then come on top of it and ask the question is it christian truth agreed so you you were just talking about ask the idea of asking i think adam just mentioned the idea of asking is this is what this author is telling us is the story that it's telling us true and then angelina you said that's a great question and it got me thinking about how that kind of brings us back to judgment right because what we're that we're teaching when we ask that kind of a question and especially when we ask it in a context where there's we're not just asking them to you know hold down like hold court by themselves on it and like write in their journal about whether it's true but whether when we have the chance to help guide the conversation and they get other perspectives from other students and it can be a real conversation that that's that's a that is the kind of question that does help form discernment and judgment um and especially yes, i would agree again. with that Except Always the with the caveat. In my teaching has been that we can't, we, it, we jump to that often too soon. Yes, yes. Yeah, we no, for sure. And what the yeah. author has actually said. Yes, yes. That, that, again, that's, that's my... judge it before we understand it. Right. That yeah. is my mantra with my students. You, you listen before you speak, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I tell them, don't read a book being that guy who's not really listening. You're just waiting for your turn to talk, right? Mm -hmm. Really listen, really mm -hmm. hear which yeah. I think is a good lesson for all of life, not just for studying literature. <laughs> so funny that there's a, there's a passage in the epistle to James in the new Testament that at center for lit, we hold up as our, as our philosophy of literary criticism. And it's uh, let every man be quick to hear slow to speak and slow to wrath actually works yes. really well as a rubric for how to read literature. Oh, that's great. I like that. I, I do everything, but I make sure that when I'm reading literature, the wrath part, I'm very quick to wrath. I'm I'm very <laughs> wrathful reader. <laughs> well, and we all are when we say, oh no, there's drinking in this book. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a classic example. Um, I mean, honestly, like going to the issue of discernment, um, there are stories in the Bible that I would not read to a, a young child <laughs> because a lot of those stories are left with an ambiguous ending, right? The narrator doesn't come in and say, now this was wrong what they did. And in fact, sometimes no bad consequences happens to the person who did something horrible. And it's just, mm. it's just all out there without commentary. 
So I, I would say everything requires discernment, not just literature. Reading the Bible requires discernment. Mm-hmm. Are you saying the Bible is not literature? Oh, it absolutely is. <laughs> I'm just, you know, I got to find ways to pick fight every three minutes. So. Like, Christianity my, is, there you go. I'll go to, I'll get crazy. Christianity is myth. It's true myth. <laughs> I've oh, got, cool. I've got a big thing on my wall in here, right? It just says pick a fight every three minutes. It's like the first rule of podcasting. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Podcast I've listened to Adam's, I've listened to Adam's show. They don't fight all the time. Well, actually you guys kind of do fight as a family, yes, like in a friendly way. Um, hey, let's, we've been going for like an ex- really extremely long amount of time. Um, Have we? It's Goodness. an hour and a half already. No, um, it's just full my. So um, we've been born ceaselessly into the future. Um, yeah. Any final thoughts here? We will get a chance to answer a lot of questions, which will give us the floor to say whatever we want to as well. So um, if you have any final thoughts, now is the time to say them before we, before we go and let people um, finish baking Christmas cookies or whatever it is. All right. My final thought is I loved this book and I cannot believe it's taken me so long to reread it. And I'm going to add it to my modern literature class, the theme of which is response to modernity. And I try Love to present it. authors who I think are asking the right questions about the world we're in. And I'm, I'm absolutely adding this book to it. Well done, Scotty. <laughs> we call him Scotty. I love Scotty. that. F Scotty. Uh, my final thought is that um, it's been a real pleasure talking about the great, great Gatsby with the two of you. Um, Angelina, we've never had an in-depth conversation about literature before, but I can tell that we're kindred spirits. This has been a ball. <laughs> it really has been. Yeah, this has been great fun. Um, I want to give one plug before we go. If you're interested yeah. in further conversations about this, Center for Lit has a, uh, a podcast called Bibliophiles, which focuses on very similar conversations uh, among the Center for Lit crew. And we have a great time, as David alluded to a minute ago, um, trading brickbats and uh, veiled insults between our family. And we talk about books, uh, thing, all things literature, and have a great time. So check out Bibliophiles on it's a good show. Uh, I've heard iTunes, good things about it. Wherever you want. Yeah. I, I was a guest once. That's right. It was wonderful. Was it? But was well, it though? What was the book? What was the book? It was, uh, well, no, we were we just picked David's brain. It, it was uh-huh. more like, I think what happened was we, me and Ian had a fight one time. And so then we're not, you, <laughs> so you, know, you decided I, it needed to be publicly displayed so Kardashian then, style. So then I think they wanted me to come on and, um, <laughs> prove whether we actually agreed or not. I don't really remember exactly. Which of course context. we did. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I think among relatively like-minded people, so many of these things come to subtleties and nuances in the way we define things, you know, because you spend 25 years kind of wrangling a definition in your own, own mind for something. Yes, I started doing this when I was seven years old. Um, uh, <laughs> 25 years kind of um, wrangling a definition into something and then someone else has wrangled it slightly differently. And so then you have to kind of work out what is the... We generally agree. So where is the areas where we slightly disagree? And that's actually kind yeah. of the fun part. So... That's really fun. That That's the great conversation right there. Exactly. It's good though. It, it helps us to, I know that I like it because it helps me to re- refine my thoughts. And when I encounter somebody who's thinking about it a little bit differently. And so then I have to think about it a little bit differently. Yeah. Well, I find that very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hey, so my final thought is that we are going to be obviously doing our Q&A episode next week. But then after that, our next book here on Close Reads, the the novel version, the Close Reads flagship show where we talk about novels is uh, Kazuo Ishiguro's The Remains of the Day. Um, Adam, have you read Remains of the Day? 
I have not. Ooh, you'd love this book. I'm telling you, it's it's actually about some of the same things as The Great Gatsby, but it takes place in England. And it's about a butler who is looking at the world that he once knew. And what oh, it is. I actually what, hate what to it admit this, but I saw the movie. Yes, me too. This is my story as well. <laughs> I didn't hey, know it was a book. You'll, no, you'll still like, you will still like the book if you've read, watched the movie and know what happens because it's not really a book where what happens is kind of the point. <laughs> so, uh, but it's, and it's not a long book too. So yeah, so this is a, this is a great one. We're going to do that. And then after that, we are going to have a slight schedule adjustment and we are going to bump the spy who came in from the cold up to after the remains of the day, which I've, uh, people who have listened to this before know that th- there's probably no book that I personally love more than The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. So I'm excited to force everyone else to read it. So you will not play devil's advocate against this book? <laughs> against the book? No, probably not. I'll play devil's advocate against whoever's on the show with me though. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then also don't forget that right now, uh, Heidi and I are talking about Henry V over on the plays, the thing. And we have, I've really enjoyed that because I get to play devil's advocate with her as well, because she like is in love with Henry and I get to pretend that he's a, a, uh, conniving jerk. So, um, if you want, if you like to dive into great literary debates about Shakespeare, we're doing that. And then after that, we're going to be discussing, uh, let's see, I think after that is Julius Caesar, I believe is the one right after that. So we have lots of great content. Don't forget about the daily poem where we're bringing you a poem every single day, pretty much, except well, except every single weekday, um, including Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, we will have poems for you, for your commuting or baking pleasure. And we've got um, a new show called um, Libromania, where I will be interviewing people who are in various ways involved in the world of books, book collectors, book designers, book publishers, working writers. If you like, if like, if you're a bookish person, as they say, if you're into book nerd stuff, then make sure you subscribe to that. And the first episode I talked with John Wilson, who is a book critic. He used to run books and culture for 25 years. And we talked about the best books of 2018. So that I really enjoyed that. And then we're going to be doing an episode uh, coming up about why To Kill a Mockingbird was named the number one most popular novel of all time. So we're going to have a discussion on that um, with a couple different people. So lots of great content. Make sure you check out what Adam is doing uh, over there with the Center for Lit and their whole crew. And then of course, make sure you're checking out what Angelina is doing. She's got classes coming up. Angelina, it's angelinastanford.com, right? It is. And your registration opens when? Beginning of February, and they felt right. very fast. All right, so make sure you head over to AngelinaStanford.com, and it's centerforlit.com, right? Correct. All right, so check those places out. Make sure you're subscribing to all the things that are subscribable. Make sure you're signing up for email newsletters so you can get all the all their uh, content, all that kind of stuff. And don't forget to post your questions either via, via email or on the Facebook page because we are going to be rearing and ready to go next week, ready to answer all your questions about about this book. So. Adam, Angelina, I really appreciate you joining me for these uh, episodes. It has been a great time. This has been fun. Yeah, Thanks, been fun. David. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks. Yep. For everyone here at Cersei, for everyone here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Merry Christmas and happy reading. Mm-hmm.